Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles now and turn them open to Ephesians chapter one. Find your way to the passage our friend Sharon just read for us a moment ago as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians uh, in our series titled The Church, Grace Made, Grace Made Visible. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, you know, growing up, um, I hated cheesecake, but many of you know that that's changed. Uh, many of you know by now that I'm a big fan of cheesecake, specifically the cheesecake uh, that's available at the Cheesecake Factory. And although I hated cheesecake for a long time, there, I had some friends who invited me there one day and I joined them at the table and, and they insisted that I tried the cheesecake. And so uh, I visited the restaurant, I sat down, I looked at the menu and I noticed on there that there was uh, a flavor of cheesecake called chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecake. Now that blew my mind because I only thought there was one flavor of cheesecake, yellow. Uh, and that's all I knew. And, and, but there was chocolate chip cookie dough cheesecakes. I said, yeah, I'm gonna have that. And so I ordered a slice and the lady brought out this huge wedge, this chunk of cheesecake, put it before me. And, and when I took that first bite, my eyes just began to water as it's just subtly sweet flavor and silky smooth texture just kind of danced on my tongue. And in that moment, something happened to me and I left a changed man. I left with a new appetite, a new desire, a new, uh, a new wanting and longing for cheesecake. So much so that I grabbed a cab on my way out to go back to the place where we were staying and I asked the cab driver, hey, have you ever had their cheesecake? And when he said no, I said, man, you're missing out. You've gotta get in on it. You've gotta go taste what I just tasted because it's that, it's that good. Now later, I met my wife, Kim, and not long after meeting her, I learned that she too loved the cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. And we had in that moment what C.S. Lewis describes as, as just a, that moment that friendships are made of when two people look at each other and they say, what, what you too? And, and that's what Kim and I had. It was, I love cheesecake, you love cheesecake, let's love cheesecake together. And it was a beautiful, a beautiful moment. But then it turned out that she loved pumpkin cheesecake and that challenged our compatibility. I wasn't so sure. <laughs> I wasn't so sure about things after that, but eventually I did, I did get over that oddity. And, uh, and we spent many dates reveling in our shared enjoyment of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Now, I'm really excited to dive into this passage. I've been looking for this moment all week long. I've gotten to sit with this passage all week, and it is incredible. But I'll be honest, my enjoyment of this passage has been incomplete because I haven't been able to share it with anyone yet. So I'm excited to share the beauty of this passage with you today, and this is the moment where we can all look at each other and say, what, you too? Because what is describing in this passage, what's being described in this passage is true of every single person in Christ, everyone who's believing the gospel that we get to revel in our shared enjoyment of God and the incredible ways in which he has blessed us in Christ. This is what this passage is all about, and so we just want to revel in it together this morning. It, this is a passage where an eruption of praise takes place. It's just an eruption of praise. All, all things considered, this passage is a type of benediction or an extended eulogy. It is a word of praise. It is a good word. Paul is praising God for the ways in which he has blessed his people. And if you notice when it was read a moment ago that there is a kind of a Trinitarian dynamic to it, each person of the Trinity gets some love. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're all mentioned. They're all celebrated in this text because we are blessed from God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. This is the richness of this passage. 
But this passage is also gospel-saturated. Jesus is mentioned 14 times in the first 14 verses of this opening chapter. The phrase in Christ or in him shows up 11 times in that same stretch because Jesus is the focal point. He's the focal point of our fellowship with God. He's, He's the rallying cry of our community. He's the one that we come together to worship week in and week out. He's the one that we serve when we scatter from this place week in and week out. Because when you were in Christ, that's where you were blessed. Being in Christ means to be blessed by God. And everything in this passage just kind of cascades from verse three. If you notice verse three, we'll read it again. It says, blessed, blessed, or praise. That's what that word could also be translated as. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, Praise God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. It's a remarkable thing that Paul is praising God for being blessed by God. And one of the things you've got to know about God is that he is a God who loves to bless his children. God loves to bless his kids. You learn this right off the bat in the Bible, right after God created the world and he created human beings in his image. We're told in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, that God blessed them. And then Jesus would communicate the same dynamic about who God is in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter seven, where he asks his disciples, he says, who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good good things to those who ask him? In other words, God our Father is really, really good and he loves to bless his children. Then Jesus' little brother, a guy by the name of James, he would write one of the letters in the New Testament. And in that letter, he would say something similar. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, meaning every good blessing in our lives, it is attributed to God's goodness, to God's God's generosity. You see, God is not a stingy, frugal, cosmic scrooge. God is a father who loves to bless his kids. And he blesses his kids without his kids having to earn his blessings. And he blesses his kids without his kids having to repay him back for his blessings. He blesses his kids that they might enjoy his grace and his goodness, that they might enjoy him. And when we find ourselves blessed by God, what that does is it draws gratitude out of our hearts. And it draws praise from our lives. This is what Paul is doing here. He's been thinking about God's blessings towards all of his kids and And now he's erupting in praise. But I want you to notice the profound nature of the blessings mentioned here. There's an important qualifier in verse three that these are spiritual blessings. Meaning Paul is talking about things that that are immaterial. And that's important because there are some who, who say that being blessed by God means to have a job. It means to have a house, it means to have a car, it means to have good health, it means to have something like freedom and opportunities and But when you think about it, many people have those things and yet they lack what Paul is talking about here. They lack the spiritual blessings that are in the heavens in Christ. You see, spiritual blessings, they transcend the material world. Spiritual blessings transcend the material world and as such, they are not subject to entropy or decay. These types of blessings are indestructible, therefore they last forever. 
You see, having, job, having a job is good, and we want to thank God for, for giving us gifts and skills and talents and abilities to get jobs and to have the opportunity to work, but understand that a job is not secure. Having a house is great, but a house is not secure. Having health is great, but health is not secure. Those types of material blessings can be taken away from us. They can be taken away because they're not securely located where death and decay cannot touch them. They're not in heaven, in Christ. They are here on earth. And here you have Paul recognizing this and calling attention to the spiritual blessings that we have because he knows that our worship of God must not be dependent upon material blessings. That we should not cease to praise God or to bless God when material things are taken away from us. Keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a job. His future is uncertain. His life may very well soon be taken from him, yet he's worshiping God. He's praising God in response to the spiritual blessings he has in the heavens in Christ. These are the types of blessings that nobody can touch. These are the types of blessings that nobody can take away. These are the types of blessings that, are, that all of us have equal and eternal access to in Christ. So when we worship God together this morning, we are worshiping God for something that we all in Christ share in common. That my worship of God is not catalyzed by something unique to me. It is catalyzed something by what we share in common together. This is how the church, again, makes grace visible to the watching world. Because we gather together to worship the Savior in response to the ways in which we have been blessed in Christ. And so I'm gonna identify five of, well, before we start identifying these blessings, I also want you to understand that verses three through 14, it's really just one long sentence in Greek. I was an English major in college, and I was told to never do that. It's called a run-on sentence, and that's essentially what you have here. 202 words strung together, just running on. There's no punctuation. It's just one, uh, from a grammatical standpoint, terrible sentence. But from a theological standpoint, it's a terrific sentence. It's incredible. Because running on is what we do when we're gripped by what God has done, right? When we're gripped by what God has done, we, we just run on and on and on. We don't want to slow down. We don't want to stop. We just want to keep going and going and going in our praise of God when we are gripped by the realities of what God has done for us. And so Paul is just laying it out here. And there are five blessings I want to call your attention to this morning. The first blessing is, is quite simply stated, the blessing of being wanted. It's the blessing of being wanted. Notice what he says there in verse four. It says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. There are three words used in verses four through six that affirm the blessing of being wanted. And they're big words. They're the words chosen, predestined, and adopted. Now, these are deep waters that we're kind of wading into in this moment. Uh, My son, when he went to the beach, he got out about three feet into the ocean and said, man, it's too deep out here. And I said, son, you don't know anything yet because you go about 3,000 feet into the ocean and things get a lot deeper. You know, when it comes to thinking about the reality of who God is and the way that God works in our lives and the way that he is working in the world, we're, we're treading into deep waters. 
And we want to recognize that there are some things that God has revealed to us that we can know, and there are some things that God has hidden from us that we cannot know. And when it comes to the language of election, that's some of those waters that we get into. Because doctrinally speaking, this is the language of election, and election is all over the Bible. It is all over the scriptures. It can't be denied if you're paying attention to the pages of the scriptures. You know that's kind of how things started when God chose Abraham, right? He called Abraham and said, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. That's a type of election. It happened with the people of Israel where God chose the people of Israel to be his treasured possession. That was a, a move that God made. It was a decision that God Made And then, of course, you get into Jesus, and you still find the language of election being used and flowing from his lips, and so much so that Jesus chose his 12 disciples. He called them by name. And there's a moment in John chapter 6 where many people are turning away from Jesus, and Jesus turns his attention to the 12 disciples, and he says this to them. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, Meaning anyone who follows me, they follow me in response to being chosen, in response to being called, in response to this work of grace in their, in their lives. And here in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that God the Father chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. This is intramural language that we use in the context in the company of the redeemed. This isn't really language that you lead with in your evangelism. This is language that you revel in as a disciple, as someone who knows God. If you know God through Jesus, it's because of these realities. And I know that the language of election can sometimes work people up into a theological or philosophical, even an existential frenzy. But understand that this language, where it shows up here in this book, this language and these realities, they're designed to solicit our worship. They're to draw praise out of our lives. And when you examine what the scriptures teach on this topic, you're going to discover that God did not elect to save people out of necessity. He elect to save people entirely out of love and grace and goodness. I mean, just think about it. There are some people who uh, assume that the reason why God created the world and put, populated it with people and the reason why God would save people who sinned against him is because he needed companionship. That somehow God was lonely, but God is not a cosmic codependent. He didn't need our, our companionship when he created us and when he redeemed us. We know this because of who God is in this passage. You got to keep in mind the Trinitarian makeup of God. The Trinitarian makeup of God that is affirmed in this text. The eternal company of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is good company. And no one is lonely in the Godhead, so you can't say that God created us and elected to save us because he was lonely. It didn't happen out of necessity. But then at the same time, God has never been in need of our worship either. There are some say that, well, God created us and elected to save us because he needed our praise. He needed our worship. But God is not vain, and he's not insecure. He's not desperately seeking compliments from his creatures. That's just not who God is. And when we bear witness to Jesus so that more people might come to praise and to worship God, we don't do that because we need more people to inflate the divine ego. That's not why we, we do that. This is one of the things that C.S. Lewis struggled with before he became a Christian. He read through the book of Psalms and he saw all the times that, that we are commanded to praise the Lord and he really struggled with that language and he struggled with the command to praise because he thought, well, does that mean God is vain or that he's desperate for compliments? But then after becoming a Christian, when his heart awoke to the gospel, he began to think about the nature of, change, of praise and, and that began to change. And listen to what he says. 
He said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. In other words, we praise what we enjoy. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. So he's saying when we're commanded to praise God, it's because we enjoy God, and until we praise God, our enjoyment of God is incomplete, until it's expressed, and I would add, expressed and shared with others. He says that such enjoyment is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. It's because the delight is incomplete until it's expressed and it is shared with others. So when we worship God, it's not necessarily because God is needy. We worship God and we praise God because we enjoy God. And our enjoyment of God is brought full circle when we're praising God. And God commands us to praise him because he knows he's enjoyable. God is a God of joy. He is a God of life. He is a God of love. And he wants us to enjoy him together. So we praise him for those reasons. You see, God did not choose us or predestine us or adopt us out of necessity. He did all of this out of desire. He wanted us to find joy and life and love in him. We worship not because we are needed. We, are, we worship because we are wanted. And there's a big difference between those two. In every relationship, it's always better to be wanted than needed. If you're needed, you can be used. If you're wanted, you're always loved. So when it comes to the blessing of being wanted, understand, Christian, that you are always loved. You know, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter seven, we, we learn why God, what, or what kind of drove God's heart towards the people of Israel, and listen to what, what is said about that. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, for you are, referring to Israel, a holy people, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. In other words, God moved towards Israel not because they impressed him by their size or they impressed him in any discernible way. He moved towards them simply because he loved them. And a very similar statement is made about those who make up the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, we read, brothers and sisters, consider your calling or your choice. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In other words, the doctrine of election is all about grace. We are not Christians because we are smarter than other people. We are not Christians because we are better than anyone. We are Christians by the sheer grace of a loving God. 
And so we're chosen, we're predestined, we're adopted into this reality. Now, does this mean that our election occurred to the exclusion of others? How are we to hear this? Does this mean that our election occurred to the exclusion of others? And I would say not necessarily. Remember back when God chose Abraham, when he called Abraham, what did he tell him? He says, I'm gonna gonna choose you, I'm gonna call you to establish a covenant with you, and I'm gonna bless you, why? I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing to the surrounding nations. Remember why God called Israel. Yes, he called them, he chose them because he loved them, but he also said Israel's going to be a light to the nations. And then remember why Jesus called the 12. Why did he choose those 12? Why did he call them? Well, we're told in John chapter 15, verse 16, that Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. And part of the fruit that they would produce would be future disciples. So they were chosen, predestined, and adopted so that other people in the world might discover that they are too that they also were wanted by God. You see, the language of election, the doctrine of election does not negate our witness. The doctrine of election, all of this language, it actually empowers our witness, meaning God has people primed and ready to believe the gospel. And he's positioned us in this city at this time to share it with them. And so as a family of faith, we share the gospel with everyone around us, both verbally and visibly. That's our mission. That's part of our calling. Notice that the accent here falls on the visible proclamation of the gospel. Because what does he say? He says, we are chosen to be holy and blameless in love before them. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we are a different kind of people. We are to be a different kind of people together. Now, a couple of days ago, I was driving through West Seattle, and I saw a lady dressed up as a unicorn, and she was dancing in the street, holding a sign, this has no purpose. Now, we're not that kind of different, right? We're a different kind of people, but we're not that kind, we're not that kind of different. We're the kind of different that says, you know, my identity is found in Christ. My identity is found in no other person, no other place, no other thing. My identity is found in Christ, and it is our position in Christ that defines us. It's our position in Christ that gives shape to the decisions we make on a daily basis. I'll give you an example of how this works. I'm a pastor, but I'm more than that. I am a pastor in Christ. You see, if I'm just a pastor, then my value and security will fluctuate with how well I perform as a pastor. If people meet Jesus, join the church, get baptized, then I'm gonna be happy. But what about those times when that's not happening? If I'm just a pastor, then my value and security can be tormented by changing seasons and changing circumstances. My mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health will become vulnerable. But if I'm a pastor in Christ, that changes things. If I'm a pastor in Christ, then my value and security is anchored where it cannot be shaken. If I'm a pastor in Christ, then I am not looking outside of Christ for value and security. I am looking into Christ, and who I am in him never changes, no matter what, no matter what else does. Now, this line of thinking can apply to every one of us, no matter where you are in life. You see, you're not just a single person. You are a single person in Christ, You're not just a college student. You're a college student in Christ. You're not just a mom. You're a mom in Christ. You're not just a husband. You are a husband in Christ. 
You're not just an empty nester. You are an empty nester in Christ. And that perspective, that reality makes all the difference to our value and to our security. Finding our identity in Christ is what will mark us out as a different type of people. Finding our identity in Christ brings stability to us. It brings security to us. It brings satisfaction to us. And so we want to press into this reality that we are wanted by God, which is why we are in Christ and we're resting in that. Now, so much more could be said about that blessing of the blessing of being wanted, but we've got more here because there's a whole lot. And so the second blessing you find here is found in verses seven and eight, and it's the blessing of being rescued. He continues his praise saying in him, referring to in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. There are two words used here that speak to the blessing of being rescued, redemption and forgiveness. Now, that term redemption refers to being liberated from slavery. And the ultimate kind of keynote picture of that is the book of Exodus, when God liberated the people of Israel from Egypt. And if you remember the story, God called a man named Moses to go and to confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, and as he was in the process of confronting Pharaoh, God empowered these crazy signs and wonders, these, these moments of judgment upon the land to kind of shake Pharaoh's fist loose so that he would let the people go. But with every one that happened, Pharaoh just kind of strengthened his grip and he kind of squeezed Israel tighter until the last and final sign and wonder, the last and final judgment came, and it was a tough one. There came a moment when God told his people to take a spotless lamb and to offer it up as a sacrifice. Then they were to take the blood of that lamb and to apply it to the doorpost of their homes, and then that night when the angel of death was sweeping through Egypt, claiming the firstborn in every home, it passed over the households that were marked out by the blood of the lamb. And in the next day, Pharaoh was broken. That moment broke Pharaoh, and so he let the people of go, and all those who had trusted in the blood, all of those who had applied the blood to the doorpost, they were spared, and they were let go, and they were redeemed from Egypt. And that whole story, all throughout the Bible, that whole story kind of sets up our understanding of the gospel. It serves as a giant object lesson for how you and I are to understand the ministry of Jesus, this is why when you get to the beginning of the Gospels and John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, notices Jesus walking into town, he looks at him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember that lamb in Egypt that was, that was sacrificed in the blood that was above the doorpost that led to redemption? Well, here's the real lamb. This is the Lamb of God and he calls everyone's attention to what Jesus would do for his people now, this past week, Counting Crows released a new song. Now, growing up, they were my favorite band, and so I checked it out because there was kind of a, a mythology surrounding that song. And the reason for that is that part of the lyrics of that song were written on the cover of their first album, an album titled August and Everything After. But they never recorded the song because the front man, Adam Duritz, just couldn't get the lyrics right. There was something about it that he couldn't quite get, and so it's 25 years later. They finally produced it, they finally released it, and they let it out last week. And the name of the song is called August and Everything After, and I, I warn you, it's a tragic song. It's a very sad song. It's a tragic song of a man who betrays his lover. 
And because he betrays his lover, he loses himself. Everything in his personal life just kind of spirals downward into some deep and dark forms of bondage. Some, some very deep, dark stuff. Meanwhile, while that's happening, his professional life is skyrocketing. His band's exploding. His, his rock music is being listened to by people all over the world, and he's excited. And, but the whole time, he knows something's not right. He knows that there's something not right with himself, and he can't fix himself. And at one point in the song, he actually makes this statement. He says, I hope you weren't expecting me to be crucified. The best that they can do is just hang me from the nearest tree. He's saying, I want you to know that I'm a Judas, I'm not a Jesus. I'm not a righteous man, I'm an unrighteous man, and he's aware of that. So he says, I can't, I'm not a good man who should be crucified. I'm a terrible man who needs to be hung on a tree like Judas. But then right after saying that, he sings these lyrics. He sings, it's midnight in San Francisco, and I'm waiting here for Jesus on my knees. In, every, in August and everything after, I need somebody else to bleed for me. In August and everything after, I need somebody else to bleed for me. He knows that his blood is tainted. He knows that he can't atone for his trespasses. He needs somebody else's blood. He needs somebody else to atone for him. And the good news of the gospel is that we have that somebody else. We have the somebody else who bled for us. We have the somebody else who gave his life so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be redeemed. No matter how deep and dark our bondage to sin is, Jesus' blood can cover it. Jesus' blood can crush it. It can cleanse it. It can do everything that is needed for us to be redeemed from both the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. And just like the Israelites walked out of Egypt, you too can walk out of your bondage. You too, by faith in Jesus, can walk away from your, from your sin. And what's interesting about the story of the Israelites is that the moment they walked out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, the first thing they do is sing. They sing the song of the redeemed and they praise God, much like what Paul is doing here, and much like why you and I sing to God week in and week out. We sing, we worship, we praise because we've walked out of our bondage. The blood of Christ is covering us and has set us free so that our sins can be forgiven and we might be rescued. So when we sing, we sing to celebrate that reality. We respond to the blessing of being rescued by the blood of Jesus. But then there's another blessing here. There's the blessing of being tuned in. Notice verse nine. Paul says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So God has blessed us also by tuning us into what he's up to. He's revealed to us what he's been doing all along. He's saying, look, I want you to know that history is heading somewhere. History is moving in a direction and it's gonna come to its climactic and its summation end. This is why many scholars believe that that phrase, to bring everything together in Christ, that that's the climax of this whole passage. Encouraging Paul to know that history is moving in a direction and one day everything's going to be made new. And Jesus is gonna restore order to the chaos of the universe because Christ is the point and the purpose of all things. As believers in Jesus, we're tuned into that reality. 
We realize that life isn't about us. We realize that the universe doesn't revolve around us. We realize that life is about Jesus and the universe revolves around Jesus. And that kind of takes a lot of weight off our shoulders. Because if life is all about you and if the universe revolves around you, you've got a lot of things to carry. And your shoulders aren't that broad. Your shoulders aren't that strong. And so it's liberating to be tuned into the reality that everything is about Christ. So we look to Christ to make everything right. Because he is the point and the purpose of everything that's going down in human history. This means that history isn't moving in a circle, an endless loop. If, if history and time was moving in a circle in an endless loop, that's kind of depressing because in endless loop, there's long stretches of downward activity, Right? And history will just repeat itself. We don't want history to repeat itself. We want history to change. But the good news of the gospel, what we're tuned into is that history isn't moving in a circle. It's not an endless loop. It is linear. It is moving into a direction where everything is brought into a new harmony and a new creation in and through all that Christ has, all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us. So we're tuned into these realities. Therefore, we don't get knocked off balance when things in the world just seems to be happening over and over and over again. We know that there's coming a day when that's going to end and everything is made right in Christ. John Stott summarizes this well when he makes this statement. He said, in the fullness of time or when that moment comes, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. And this brings us to the fourth blessing. It's the blessing of being hopeful. It's the blessing of being a hopeful people. Notice verse 11. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. It's a mouthful. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Two phrases, received an inheritance and put our hope in Christ. We've put our hope in Christ that one day he's going to make all things new. We put our hope in Christ knowing that the meek one day will inherit the earth that is the new creation. That there's coming a day when we enjoy God in a new heaven and a new earth and a new reality. A reality where sin and sickness and suffering and Satan and death are no more. And God wipes away every tear from our eyes. We we have that hope in us. Now, understand that this hope here is not wishful thinking. It's not like, well, man, I I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. Or I hope the Mariners would make better roster decisions. It's not wishful thinking where you just don't know what's going to happen. This is confident assurance. And this confident assurance makes a difference in how we live life right now. Since our hope is in Christ and in this future, we, that means we don't have to project our present into the future, which is the cause of most of our anxieties. And it's the cause of most of our worries. When we project the present into the future, we say things like, well, whatever life is like right now, that's how it's gonna be forever. And when we live that way, we get anxious. When we live that way, we get worried. When we live that way, we get depressed. If you're sick right now, you think your sickness is gonna last forever. If you're hungry right now, you think your hunger's gonna last forever. If you're anxious and depressed, you think that's going to last forever, but that's not who we are in Christ because we have the blessing of being a hopeful people. We've been tuned into these realities. And so we don't project the present into the future. Instead, we let the future give shape to our perspective in the present. 
Remember that Paul is writing these words in prison. He doesn't know how much time he has left in the world, but he's still singing. He's still eulogizing. He's still praising God. He's still worshiping. He hasn't lost hope. This is the same guy who would tell us in the book of Romans that we rejoice in hope because we are hopeful people. We all have reason to sing. Even when we're weeping, we can be singing because of these realities. Elsewhere, Paul wrote this. He said, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, that is our present circumstances. We focus on what is unseen, or on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We look to the hope that we have in Christ, this spiritual blessing of being a hopeful people. And so our future gives shape to our present. And when our future gives shape to our present, we rejoice in hope, we worship, we sing, we can always bless God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Spiritual blessings that can't be touched by anything in a fallen world. But then the fifth and final blessing identified here is the blessing of being sealed. He comes to this moment in verse 13 where he reminds us of how we've been sealed by a person We read, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now this is is a rich, rich portion. He's describing what happens to every person who becomes a Christian. A person becomes a Christian by hearing the gospel, by hearing the message about Jesus. That's why we want to share the gospel and tell people about Jesus because faith comes by hearing. So when you hear the gospel, that creates faith to believe the gospel and with faith in the gospel comes the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of every Christian. So whether you heard the gospel on a Sunday morning or on a radio in your car, whether you heard the gospel in a conversation with a friend over coffee, you heard the gospel The gospel created faith, and with your faith came sealing, came the the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, back in the day, that word seal was used to mark ownership. So if you owned something back in the day, you would seal it with your personal seal to say, that's mine. I'm claiming it. I own it. Don't take it. Don't touch it. That's what seals did. We're here. We're being told that God's seal in our lives is his Holy Spirit. It's his presence. And when God gives us his spirit, he's saying, look, I'm claiming that person. That person is mine. That person is my possession. That person is my treasured possession. And the spirit marks us out so that we belong to God and and we belong to God forever. Paul goes on to say that this is the guarantee of our inheritance It's a guarantee of what we hope for in the future. It's because the Holy Spirit is testifying to our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God, that these realities are true for us. That's how the Holy Spirit ministers to us. He reminds us that these things are true about us. And so we live in hope and we have this guarantee of an inheritance because the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that. 
Now, to be sure, God blesses us in life, and this is one of the best, one of the most impactful and immediate ways that he blesses us in this life is by giving us his Holy Spirit. And we know that there's much more to come because of all that's being say, said in this text. And so I wanna ask those of you who may be wrestling with some of these things, and maybe you've asked the question about Christians, is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation and to fall out of these blessings and to maybe fall out of Christ? I was in Christ, but then I tripped and fell, and now I'm no longer in him. So can a Christian lose his salvation? I would say, according to this passage, no, you cannot. Because the kingdom of God is not a bad airport that loses luggage that's been marked by its owners. The kingdom of heaven is, is overseen with a sovereign eye. It is overseen with a, by a graceful God who doesn't lose anyone who belong to him. And so if you are a Christian and you're worried about losing your salvation, let me assure you that you, you can't lose your salvation because Christ doesn't lose those who belong to him. He has a sovereign eye and he's a graceful God. But then you may be wondering, well, how do I know if these blessings are mine? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? And I would simply ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a repentant heart that is looking to Jesus for redemption, for rescue, for salvation? If you're looking to Jesus for salvation, understand that that's the Holy Spirit's work in you. As the Holy Spirit testifies within us that we are the children of God, he draws our soul's attention to the beauty of Jesus. So if you believe in that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord, then all these blessings are yours. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some traditions of churches that say, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, then that's gonna show up in some other type of external manifestation. And you may have heard this, that if you're a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, then you must speak in tongues. That's how you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. But to be honest with you, that, that's not what the scriptures teach. Sure, that happen, may happen for some, but evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence is seen in a repentant heart that's looking to Jesus to be saved. And if you have a repentant heart that says, look, I can't save myself, I can't atone for myself, the best that can be done for me is to be hung on a tree, you're repenting of that, saying, look, I need somebody, else's, somebody else to bleed for me, you're, you're saying that, you're praying that, you're realizing that, then that's the Holy Spirit's witness and testimony in your soul. That's the Holy Spirit sealing you and marking you out as a child of God, saying, look, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, you've been bought with the blood of the Lamb, and because of that, you are blessed by God. Therefore, revel in these blessings. Enjoy these blessings. Then there's one more question that we would ask in light of this passage is why would God do all of this for us? Why would he be so kind? Why would he treat us so well? Well, we're told three times, and you see it there at the end of verse 14, but that same phrase is used three times. We're told three times that God blesses us in these ways to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, he does this so that we might worship and enjoy him forever and ever. He does this so that we might sing and shout and cheer and celebrate. He does this so that we might worship God for who he is and for what he has done to redeem and to rescue our lives. And this is something that we don't have to wait for heaven to do. <laughs> this is something that we can do right here, right now. We can take our hands out of our pockets and we can lift them to the Lord. We can open our mouths and we can sing songs celebrating these realities. We can unite our voices together and praise God for the grace that he has shown us. We can sing in response to what God has done for wanting us, for rescuing us, for tuning us in, for giving us hope, and for sealing us with his spirit forever. This is what we can do 
And in many ways, this is why God has been so kind to us in Christ. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you to do just that. I would encourage you to to praise God for his glorious grace. I'm gonna invite you to stand and I'm gonna pray for us. And then we're gonna do that. We're gonna unite our voices in praising God for wanting us, for rescuing us, for tuning us in, for giving us hope, and for sealing us with his spirit forever. So if you would stand with me, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for being so kind to us. We thank you for blessing us in these ways. And I pray that these blessings would flood our soul with life and with joy, with faith and with gratitude. And I ask that you would hear our praise this morning and that you would be glorified in what we sing and even in how we sing. Let us worship you now in spirit and in truth. I ask God that you would bring our enjoyment of you full circle because we're sharing it with one another in this moment to sing truths about you at the same time and in the same space. God, would you enrich this moment for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we worship and as we sing, some of the parents here, you, you may want to go get your kids and bring them in to participate, to participate and overhear the singing of God's people. And then, so feel free to do that and to bring your kids in. Others of you may want to also know that the table is open during this time. And as you approach the table, to approach the table with a spirit of gratitude, Gratitude for the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be brought into Christ and know these blessings. All of that illustrated week in and week out when we go to the table and take the bread and the cup. And so the table's open during this time for you to go at your own pace at whatever time you see fit. But uh, let's sing, let's celebrate, let's worship together.